What's up, everyone? Hope you're doing well today. This is Raphael Garcia along with Schwan Humes on Thursday, uh, August 22nd for episode 132 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. And first and foremost, as always, we'd like to thank you for taking your time to listen to our content. Thank you for taking a moment to check us out here, whether you're playing the show live or listening to us on our YouTube channel. We are also on Anchor, SoundCloud, and Spotify now. So follow our podcast in all of those locations. And as always, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Head over to MMARatings.net where you can like the fights and let us know how excited you are for upcoming fights using our star system. And you can always read work by myself Adam Martin and my partner here, Shawan. How are you doing, Shawan? Let everybody know how uh, things are going your way. Uh, busy as always. No complaints, though. Doing well. Glad to be on the show again. Good, good. Um, so we got a little bit to talk about today. We definitely have UFC 241 to recap. There's some, you know, there were major developments across a couple of weight classes last Saturday at that event. And I also want to talk about Bellator um, looking to sign Cyborg and Kat Zingano, and also Conor McGregor and his apology, along with the interview that he did with Ariel Hawani. Uh, we're going to start there. Did you see that interview that just happened a few hours ago? I actually did not. I heard, once again, heard about it. I hadn't had a chance to sit down and check it out. So it's pretty interesting. It's, it's Of course, it's one of those um, damage control type of inter- interviews where he's been out, you know, wilding out, doing Conor McGregor things, and I guess it's gotten to the point now where he has to do something to let people know he's not a wild man and let people know he's not damaged goods. He basically, I want to say, apologized for hitting that old man in the bar in Dublin last week, and he talked about that for a moment, and he had a pretty interesting quote around it as well, too. Let me see if I can find it real quick to see what he said. Give me one second, because I just had it pulled up. Um, give me one second, see if I can pull that up again. Let's see what he said. Uh, no, I don't have it there. Sorry about the second, folks. Let me see if I can find that quote he had. Uh, not there. One more. Check one more place. Nope, not there as well. So I don't really don't give a shit. But yeah, he basically was um, apologizing for that moment. And it's one of those typical athlete apologies where he notes that he has a lot that he could lose um, for himself and his family for generations to come if he doesn't behave. So he basically said he was going to keep himself from losing control and acting out in public like that. But he also said some other things, some interesting things where he commented that before he broke his hand that there was talks of him to return in July uh, to fight at Madison Square Garden. And his opponent would have been another, uh, none other than former World Series of Fighting champion Justin Gaethje. That's who they, he was in talks of fighting. What are your thoughts about that there, Shawan? Would that have been a fight that would have uh, stolen the, the show back in January or July? Yeah, I mean, it would have been a good matchup. Gaethje's dangerous because of his his chin, the volume he throws, the the fact he punishes the legs and the body, and he's he puts everybody he fights through hell. But Gaethje is also a good matchup for Connor because Connor has layers to his striking. He's very good with the distance management, and while Gaethje is fairly defensively sound, he he, he is hittable. 
And when you're that aggressive and you, you throw that much volume, you're, you're, vul- you're vulnerable to getting countered. Connor's a, a volume counter puncher, counter striker, which basically sets up the, the matchup that he wants. A guy who's not going to wrestle him, a guy who's going to seek to break him, a guy who's going to seek to knock him out, which is the fight Connor wants, which allows him to possibly get a, get a fight that's going to draw on attention and get a big win that could springboard him right back into contendership in the, the division. So I definitely agree with you. I think it would have been an action-packed fight. It's a fight that could have gone well. It could have gone good for Conor. It could have gone badly. I think the longer the fight would have went on, it would have been more dangerous for him just because uh, we know that he struggles in longer affairs. Uh, so that was a pretty bit of interesting news that came out in this interview on ESPN with Ariel Hawani. He also um, brought up Khabib and that he wants to get his belt back from Yamaga Madoff. And can you hear me, Deshaun? You there? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, I got you. Okay, I thought I, thought I had a um, technical issue. But yeah, so he talked about getting his um, belt back from Namaga Madoff. And I don't know, man. Do you think that that fight would go any differently if they fought right now? Or is it a situation where the fact, well, they've both been inactive since then, but is. Um, Khabib so far ahead of Connor that you think this fight will go the same way the first one did? Well, I, for one, I saw the fight a little bit different than a lot of people saw it. Clearly, Khabib won. He was able to control grappling exchanges. He landed big on the feed a couple times. He was able to finish and submit Connor. My perspective on it was Khabib was expecting to get takedowns easier than he did. He was expecting to have more control over Connor on the ground than he did. And he was expecting to be able to put more punishment on Connor on the ground than he did. I'm not saying he didn't land punishment. I'm not saying he didn't submit him because I saw that. But he wasn't nearly as overwhelming and damaging as we had been used to seeing Khabib doing. Even people who don't like Connor McGregor have to admit, Connor showed very improved takedown defense. It showed excellent, if not very good, if not excellent, ground defense on the ground. Khabib really wasn't beating him up that much early, even though he took him down. And on the feet is where really Connor's lack of sharpness and timing kind of made kind of put him put him at risk the question isn't can connor have technical answers for khabib the question is does he have enough answers it's like um you know i've you, i've grappled before i've sparred before a guy shoots i could probably defend the initial takedown but when he starts chaining him that's when i can't defend him and it's the same thing going against a grappler i can go against a high level grappler he spins out for the arm bar i could probably defend the arm bar then he, tra- he transitions to the triangle. I might be able to defend the triangle, but when he's switching back and forth, I'm probably either going to get caught or he's going to reverse me and then put me in another position, get side control, and work me over from there. Defending individual techniques isn't the problem. It's being able to defend the techniques that are second, third, and fourth because when you're dealing with somebody of that high caliber of skill set, the first one is just a feeler out, just to get you in the position to set up the second one. Whichever one gets you is the one, one that gets you. All I'm trying to do is get you in position so I can find – which shot is which technique is going to be the one that's going to get you where I want or in the fight the way I want. It's the same thing with striking. It's just with grappling, it's a little bit more hands on. I don't know that Connor can make up that kind of difference because the matter is, the fact of the matter is, grappling with somebody like that, they're used to it. You're conditioned for it. Grappling is extremely exhausting. And if you're not conditioned for that, it's very hard for you to be technically sound. It's hard for you to create scrambles. It's hard for you to even have the will to fight submissions or to squirm out, or just to keep going, because your body's not conditioned to that. I don't know that Connor can make that up in six months or a year. Now, he could come up with, if his striking is a little bit cleaner, he can defend well enough to get his strikes off, 
But to actually be in extended grappling exchanges with Khabib, I think he needs to have another fight and then take another six months and really and really get his striking down so that the grappling is a supplemental aspect of the game. He can't depend purely on his grappling. He's not conditioned well enough, and he doesn't have a deep enough toolkit or a high level, high high level, high level enough weapons in his toolkit for him to do more than nullify Khabib in spots, which is what he did. But he was never in any danger of finishing Khabib or dictating where the fight would go. So I want to talk uh, about what you just said from a statistical standpoint, because I don't totally agree with what you were saying about Namago um, Madoff's takedown efficiency. Because uh, in that fight, he scored uh, three of seven takedowns, one in the first, second, and fourth round. Well, he, he, he went one of two in the first round, um, and then he, he was perfect in both the second and fourth round. He only needed one takedown in both of those rounds to keep Connor on the mat. And um, Margo Madoff scored 45 of 63 strikes on the ground, which is almost as many strikes Connor scored across the whole fight. He landed... 52, 51 significant strikes, and um, to Namago Madoff's 45 that just came on the ground. He had 70 overall. Um, I don't know, man. The way this fight kind of played out, I think it played out pretty much the way Namago Madoff wanted him to. Yeah, he didn't... Did he bloody Connor up? Probably not as much as he may have wanted to, but um, Connor didn't have an answer for anything. He really... I mean, he didn't get... He got up off the ground one time out of being placed there four times. So I don't think he really did enough to say that his takedown defense really did improve. I mean, he stopped three takedowns in the third round, but we know that Namago Madoff took that round off as well, because that's actually the only round that he allowed um, Gregor to outstrike him in as, as well. Yeah. I, I thought the same thing. Too. I thought similar things, but I was watching the fight and I would, and I was interacting with a couple people who, who um who were friends with Khabib and trained with Khabib. That's why when the whole brawl broke out afterwards, everybody was shocked. And I was like, nah, dude, I, I knew what was happening. One of the guys told me, as soon as this fight's over, watch what happens. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, just watch what happened. And so he was telling me, and his perspective on it was, he's not he's not that he didn't think Khabib was dominating, but he was like, I'm guaranteeing you, I've sparred with Khabib for years. I rolled with him, been and sorry with him. Khabib's having to work harder than he than he's used to working. He wasn't expecting to work this hard to get Conor McGregor down. Every time you've seen somebody wrestle Connor, for the most part, when they get their hands on him, they just have their way with him. And he's like, the reason he's easing up in this third round is because he's spent more energy than he expected to spend. He expected to take Connor down, hammer him, if not finish him in the first round, knock him out on the ground in the first round, or submit him in the first round. When that didn't happen, he wasn't expecting Connor to be able to survive. He wasn't expecting Connor to be in a position where he wasn't just getting pounded into submission, similar to what Jim, what Michael Johnson had with him. So he was like, he's a little fatigued. And he's like, if Connor is able to navigate this round correctly, he might be able to extend them the whole fight. He's like, Khabib's pulling back a little bit because Khabib's, he was, came out, he looked a little tight when he came out to me. And I think personally, he, he put a lot of energy into those first two rounds and he didn't get the finish he thought he was going to get. So now he's trying to scale it back a little bit so that he can manage things and, uh, and work, work things out with them. So while I, I see your point, I, I, I clearly believe uh, Khabib dominated the fight and he did give away the third round. There was just a reasoning behind, and I, we don't know. I'm not in Khabib's mind. I'm just telling you what his trainer partners told me. They said he looks a little tight and he looks a little fatigued, and they were afraid that he maybe gassed himself out. And it was this was going to be the point where Connor turned the fight around on him because they weren't used to seeing Khabib kind of 
ease up on anybody. Usually he just builds up the pressure. You don't see him letting guys out of position. You don't see him not committed to what he's doing. And they said, I saw a little hesitation there. So I thought he might have completely gassed. But fortunately for him, he navigated the round, took back over in the fourth round. But guys I know who know him personally and rolled with him for years, they they felt there was some concern. They, they thought Connor might have figured him out and got him in a position where he was going to be gassed and be subject to being overwhelmed by Connor. Good thoughts there, sir. Some pretty interesting thoughts there. Um, I think the last, so those are the main, main, like the three big points that came out of this interview. I need to rewatch it after our show today to kind of give some more insight, but I didn't want to linger too long on that because I'm kind of tired of talking about Connor. Um, I would like, I would love to talk about him in a competitive stance, like when he's getting back in the cage, what's going on from there. I'm kind of tired of talking about the outside of the cage actions and antics, but you know, it is what it is. This is part of the sport that we cover every day. So there, yeah, he, there, he's, he's kind of over so you know, he. I mean, and I'm sure you you feel similar. He's kind of overplayed his hand a little bit because he's he was able to tease people with the interest of him fighting, but when there was not, no announcement made and injuries come up and he's getting all these brawls, it takes away from some of his validity as a fighter. Because Connor might be many things. Maybe he's out of control. Maybe he's spoiled and he's pampered by the UFC. But he is a good fighter, and it's been to the point now where his fighting is over, over, overshadowed by his antics. And as a fighter or an athlete or a parent, whatever you are, you never want your antics to overshadow who and what you are. And that's the way it's beginning to look like for him. And he's really starting to feel that pressure. People aren't talking about it. They're talking about Nate Diaz. You know, and, and he could have had the fight with Anthony Pettis. He could have been in position to reestablish himself in a, in a big beating Pettis off a big win and have the whole platform to himself and take over the whole show again. But he overplayed his hand. He's been out a little bit too long. He's coming off a loss. And, um, now he, he's kind of an afterthought. I mean, even though he's still a name, guys like Masvidal and Diaz are getting more attention than the Connor. And two years ago, Connor was the biggest name in combat sports outside of Floyd Mayweather. So let me ask a question here. Do you think that his outside of the cage um, action and antics are um, tainting him in the view of his fans? I, I think I think to the point now, um, I. I really think it's starting to. I mean, he still has his his dedicated fans who believe in him and Connor's the best and Connor's the greatest. But now it's starting to get to the point where it's hard to defend him. I like Connor McGregor, but what am I going to say when somebody says he needs to get a win? He does need to get a win. He needs to take a fight instead of making smart comments about people who win or lose fights. It's always like, you know, he's not doing anything. He's still a star. He's still a celebrity, but his legitimacy of a fighter has been impacted because he's not fighting. He's just taking shots at people and saying, I want a title fight. And when Connor came in here, people said he was a he was an act, he was a front, he was a fake. But the fact of the matter is, Connor fought everybody and fought often and built himself up and put himself in position to get the fights he wants. Whether there's favoritism or not, nobody could argue he was coming in there mopping the floors of guys, fighting every so many couple of months and beating top ranked guys. That's how he got to Aldo. He had to go through Mendez, Poirier, Seaver, Holloway. That's a hard that that's a good resume. But now. The personality and the extra stuff is overshadowing that. Who's Connor beat? How often has Connor fought? He's lost in boxing, lost to Khabib. Now he's sitting out there making, being cocky, making comments. That works when you're knocking fools out. That works when you're beating top rank opponents. It don't work when you haven't touched the inside of the cage. People don't want to hear that tough talk when you're still a fighter who could fight and you're not fighting. Now you're kind of like a celebrity or like a, a fan. You're just another guy making smart comments. So uh, he really needs to get in there because. 
his fans still have faith in him, but it's very hard to defend him when he has literally done nothing of the sort, nothing to draw attention, nothing to legitimize that faith in him. What, what can I say as a Connor fan to you if you say, well, Khabib's the greatest, Khabib's getting ready to fight Dustin Poirier. I don't know when the hell Connor's going to fight again. I, I, don't, I don't have a comeback. So do me a favor, man. Your mic is like cutting, like not cutting out. It sounds like it's scraping against something. So see if you can get that squared away. But um, yeah, that, like that's definitely some strong insight in Connor and where he stands um, right now. Another person that we're talking about what what is next for them. Actually, two other people are Cyborg and Kat Zingano. As you know, Cyborg uh, has been released, not released, but she fought out her contract, and the UFC is not going to attempt to negotiate with her. And Kat Zingano was released last week. Both of these two individuals, Scott Coker went on record today saying that he uh, is interested in bringing them both in. And what are your thoughts about that? Should Bellator look at picking up uh, Zingano and um, Cyborg? Would that be a valuable uh, purchase? Not purchase. Would that be a valuable signing for that organization? Uh, I mean, I don't see how it could be. couldn't be. Cyborg's still one of the... I mean, to be honest, even though she lost to Amanda Nunes, I'd probably say Cyborg's more famous than Nunes. Cyborg's probably the biggest name in women's mixed martial arts right now as far as worldwide attention and brand. And she's still, she's coming off a win. She looked good in it. She's only really had, she's only had one loss in the past, what, 10 years? So it's an excellent pickup. It legitimizes their division and it gives them a name that people are going to be interested in seeing to fight. Same thing with Zingano. Zingano's not wildly popular like um, Cyborg is, but she is a name. She has a fan base, and she's only been losing to the better girls in the world. And right now, as thin as the UFC's bantamweight division is, as thin as their featherweight division is, um, Kazangana still would be probably one of the top three to five athletes in Bellator, and she's fought a higher class of opponent. She's fought at a higher level and a higher class. It, it's a good signing regardless. They need names, they need people with interest stories, and they need people who can fight. Kazangana isn't what she used to be, but she can still fight. And Cyborg isn't what she used to be, but she's still no worse than the second or third best female fighter in the world. So it, it's great pickup for him. Good thoughts there, sir. Um, do you think that either one of these women will be champion in another organization? I can see Cyborg being a champion in, in Bellator. I like Julia Budd, but Julia Budd, in my opinion, hasn't beaten an elite fighter yet, as of yet. Every time she's faced the elite, she's lost. And I know she's put on a before? lot of... I want to say she fought she fought a uh, Ronda Rousey before. I don't think she, she fought Cyborg. She, she fought Rousey and Nunez. I know that much. Um, keep talking. Let me see. Let me see if she's fought yeah. Cyborg before. And Bud's a good fighter. She could, she's a she's a she's a she's a good striker. She's disciplined. She's a very good grappler. She's got good wrestling. I don't know that she has the athleticism or the power. She doesn't have Nunez's athleticism or power, and I don't think she has the subtle counter strike that Nunez has either. Can she hit Cyborg? Yeah. If Spencer could hit her, she can hit her. Can she get her down? Possibly, but I don't know that she's physically stronger than Cyborg. I still don't know that she's a better athlete than Cyborg. And when Cyborg starts putting pressure and putting shots together, I don't know how well she takes it. In all the fights she's been in, she's been the boss, and she's been running over girls, and she's not going to do that to Cyborg. I mean, she could hurt her. Cyborg's chin isn't what it used to be. I think Cyborg's lost a couple of steps, but technically speaking, strategically speaking, Cyborg's better than she's ever been. And I don't, I don't know the buds on the striking level or the uh, athletic level of a Nunez. So Bud has fought. Uh, she only lost twice in her career, and that was to Ronda Rousey and Amanda Nunez. She lost to Rousey in 39 seconds and Nunez in 14. This was back in 2011. 
Yeah, the two the two best athletes she's fought and the two best fighters she's fought she's lost to, and she's on a winning streak in Bellator. But who in Bellator? I mean, in Bellator, Felicia Spencer's probably a contender right now. I mean, to be honest, if we're talk, if we're being honest against the girl she's fighting, Felicia Spencer's probably a, a contender a contender in Bellator. And if, like I said, if Cyborg fights and she loses the Bud, that tells me more about where Cyborg's at than tells me the Bud's elite. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a I'm a Bud fan. I I can only go by what I see. Good thoughts there, sir. We just we mentioned that Bud is on a streak and she is a defending champion, which is all 100% correct. Let's talk about the champion, the heavyweight champion, the new heavyweight champion in the UFC, where Stipe Miocic got a big win this past Saturday where he stopped Daniel Cormier in the fourth round of their heavyweight affair, becoming a two-time champion, snatching the belt away from Cormier and pretty much setting his path forward to do whatever the hell he wants. Let's talk about this fight first from a, from a stylistic point of view. What did you see there, and what did you think of the adjustment that he made to begin attacking the body? Well, I have two posts on this. One, it was, it was a good adjustment. It is very good, and uh, I have to commend him for making the adjustment. That's the complimentary part. Two, the second part of this, and I made sure to leave with a compliment because the second part isn't very nice at all. I don't understand how the hell it took him two tries in five rounds to figure out you need to attack Donald, you need to attack Daniel Cormier to the body. Like I understand why Ozemir doesn't do it, but even Gustafson touched the body a little bit. John Jones showed that if you go to the body, um, he's going to overcommit to it because he doesn't like it to the body. And for some reason, Stipe didn't even touch the body until the fourth round of the second fight. He did not attack the body really in the first fight. He didn't even touch the body in the second fight until the fourth round of a fight he was losing. He was losing that fight. That was like three round, two rounds of one, possibly three and oh. And it took him getting to that point before he went to the body consistently. And I don't understand how you do film study or you have a valid coach or a valid camp. Nothing against his camp. I don't know. the. Well, I know one of those guys in there, which is another reason I don't know why he didn't go to the body, because I know one of his old boxing coaches. We always talk about body punching. So I have no idea why he did not go to the body and why it took him so long. And then in the in the post-fight, they asked you, hey, did your corner tell you to go to the body, or did you just make the adjustment? He said, I just made the adjustment. And I'm like, what corner are you in where they don't tell you, go to the body on Daniel Cormier? That's one of the things I said in the before. I said he has the jab front kick to the body, jab to the body, right hook to the body, left hook to the body. I, I don't understand how his corner did not highlight him to do that. At any point in the fight, in two fights, they never said that. And then he had to figure out it on his own. Nobody in his corner said, go to the body. I mean, it, it's, the one thing, it's the one thing I talk about all the time. And it took him five rounds to make that adjustment. That's a concern to me. I mean, it's great that he made the adjustment, but I don't see how any world-class elite-level fighter doesn't make that adjustment earlier or doesn't start putting that, putting that away earlier. Had he started touching the body in the first round, it, it probably doesn't go four rounds. It doesn't go four rounds at all. So while I'm impressed that he decided to make the adjustment, I don't understand what took so long unless he willingly engaged in a bad fight to get beaten up and be down two to one rounds, possibly three to zero rounds before he turned around if he's, if he's just trying to be dramatic. Otherwise, that's just not very high IQ. And I like Stipe, but... The way he approached that fight was not very clever. He made that a lot harder than it had to be. So do you think any piece of that was 
their strategy to kind of wait out the body shots until later on in the fight when Cormier would be um, more gassed and unable to fight them off as well as if he would have been able to do and make adjustments earlier in the fight? Well, they can... And see, this is the thing. This is, this is a thing you can say when, when you work a corner and it works out in your favor. You get the knockout. You get the finish. You can say things like, we were just playing rope-a-dope. Like, uh, the guy from Team Alpha Male was telling me years ago how he he told Darren Elkins to play rope-a-dope against that one guy where he had that huge comeback. He goes, the plan was to play rope-a-dope until he got tired and then take over the fight. You can say that because you won the fight because that guy has no chin and no cardio. That wasn't a good plan. That was a terrible plan. That wasn't rope-a-dope either. You got beat the hell up, and then that guy got tired of beating you up, and then he was able to come back. That was an awful plan. And if this was their plan to try and extend him, I don't necessarily know if you get into extensive exchanges with a guy who's already knocked you out cold. I mean, it'd be different if they went the full distance before. Cormier took his best shots before. Stipe could not take Cormier's shots. If that's what they say, then I have to go with it. I don't think that was their plan at all. I thought they thought Stipe was younger. With losing the weight, Stipe would be faster, and he'd be able to outwork Cormier. And when he started putting shots together on Cormier, Cormier would get tired, and Cormier would get stopped. I don't think he expected Cormier to win the first round. He thought Cormier just caught him. I don't think he expected Cormier to win the second round. In the first fight, he said, Cormier just caught me. I just got caught. I just got caught. Not understanding that his defense was bad and his approach to the fight gave Daniel the fight he wanted to have. What I believe happened is Cormier said this. I'm not going to really grapple with this guy. I'm not going to pay attention to these defense. I'm going to force this guy into heavy-level exchanges. I'm, not, I'm just going to go back and forth with him. I believe he can't hurt me. I believe I can hurt him. So if we get into these exchanges where it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, I believe I can take a shot. I believe my shots will hurt him more. This way, he won't be able to box. He won't use his length. He won't use his footwork. He'll stand right in front of me and get into an ego contest and exchange with me. He won't even have time to attack my body because he's going to be so heavy into exchanging and a, and a back and forth brawl with me. I can win five rounds of brawling with Miocic's five rounds. And to be honest, if Miocic doesn't go to the body, he loses the fight. He wasn't going to win that fight any other way into, except breaking Cormier down to the body. And I think Cormier threw out the defense, threw out any sort of semblance of technical striking, and decided to just force exchanges, knowing that Miocic would meet him in there. And he'd either knock Miocic out, or Miocic would get tired, and he'd turn it on late in the fifth round and pull away late for, for winning the fight. That's what I believe Cormier did. And I believe Miocic got caught up in that fight. Because Miocic didn't use his limb. He didn't use his front kicks, his leg kicks. He didn't use feints or jabs. He didn't start using that until his fourth round. And as soon as he started using it, Cormier had no answer. But once again, if that's the case, why didn't you just do it earlier? And of course, they can say that was our plan. It's a stupid plan. Taking punishment is never a good plan, especially the guy who knocked you out in one round a fight ago. That's a dumb plan. So if that was the plan, I disagree with it completely. I don't think that was the plan. I think he got caught up. I think he threw away all his best weapons. I think he fought a dumb fight, and he was lucky enough that he came to his senses to make an adjustment to win the fight. Because I guarantee you, if he doesn't throw those body shots, he does not win five rounds. We've seen Daniel turn it on late five-round fights. We've seen him ramp it up. I think Stipe would have been had one good, more good round in him, and I think he would have been gassed. So while it's an impressive win, the fact that it took him so long to do the right things that would have had him win the first fight and would have had him win the second fight easy is very shocking to me, and it, it, it raises some concerns for me as far as his future moving forward.
So uh, who do I want to focus on here first? Let's talk about Cormier for a second. Why do you think he didn't switch up his uh, strategy to begin scoring some takedowns here? Because we saw him score some clean takedowns in the fight whenever he attempted to do so, like he did it at will. So what stopped him from scoring clean takedowns later on in the fight when he started taking those body shots or when it was clear that, um, what should we call it, uh, Stipe was switching up his style? Do you think he was too tired to do so at that point in time, or was there something else that, that was wrong? It's, I think he was a little tired. But secondly, and more importantly, um, in the first fight with Gustafsson, Gustafsson moved around a lot. But then at a certain point, Gustafsson just started exchanging with, with Cormier. Cormier likes to force these heavy exchange fights where guys burn themselves out or he knocks guys out or he can finish guys because he believes his chin, his activity, his pressure can break almost anybody. And except for the fight, except for Jones and now Stipe, he's been right. He's fought world-class guys. He's always taking their best shots from Johnson to Ozdemir to Stipe. And he's always been able to finish them or, or run them into the ground by walking them down. Against Stipe, I really believe he felt, I can take Stipe's shots. Stipe cannot take mine. First fight, he was hitting me left and right. I hit him with like maybe 10 shots, and he was out cold. He believed that he could take Stipe's shots. He believed Stipe could not get into heavy exchanges and win them. He believed Stipe couldn't go a hard five rounds and beat him. He didn't have, he didn't have any faith that Stipe could do that. That for, forcing that kind of fight makes you fight dumb. It's like when we see a fighter, why is he exchanging? Why not just go to the ground? When you get caught up in somebody else's fight, you get drugged into their fight, you start fighting stupid. When you start fighting stupid, you give them opportunities to win. That's all that happened. He, got, he engaged in that fight. Now, as far as taking Stipe down, it's one thing. When, you, when you're doing body shots, you kind of drop, le- you, you drop levels a little bit with your knees. You change levels. When you change levels a little bit, your hips drop a little bit. When your hips drop a little bit, it's a little bit harder to pull them out from under somebody to finish takedowns. Second of all, when Stipe was going with those body shots, Stipe was circling back and forth. He was pivoting around Daniel a little bit. He was moving. It's one thing to, to shoot a takedown when somebody's coming forward or standing right in front of you. Somebody's on their toes, kind of pivoting, angling in, angling out. It's hard to get a clean shot. And if Daniel goes for a takedown, which takes a lot of energy, and Stipe's off at an angle, and Stipe can just limp leg his way out of it, or Stipe can just sprawl out on Daniel, where Daniel's extended, you want Stipe Miocic on top of you when you've got half of a leg, and he's about to drop hammer fist on the back and side of your head? You don't want that. You want to shoot for him, and then he's off at an angle, and you miss completely, and now you're on the defensive. You don't know where the strikes are coming from against a guy who's a proven finisher against Stipe. You don't want that either. So the movement and the fact that he was changing levels made it a lot harder for him to get those takedowns. If Daniel wanted to use the takedowns, he should have mixed them in, maybe begin the round or halfway through the round or at the end of the round. He should have finished with a takedown because that would have made Stipe be a little bit more gun-shy because now he doesn't know if Daniel's just attacking with punches or is he punching his way into a clinch or punching his way into transition to a takedown. And the one other thing Daniel could have done, better yet, Daniel Daniel didn't touch the body very much either. I don't know why he wasn't attacking Stipe to the body. He's the right height. His, the body's right there before the head is. Body, body, head combination. He would have went to the body, then the head consistently, and back to the body. Stipe wouldn't have made it out of the fourth round either. It was just a very low-level fight in regards to technique and strategy. It was brilliant strategy, but very shallow. But it was very shallow and, and sloppy technique. It was basically a tough man fight with occasional mixed martial arts skills thrown in, thrown in there. I've, I've seen sparring matches more technical than that. It was a matter of heart, a matter of will, and somebody 
in the fourth round decided, hey, I'm going to fight with some common sense. And when they did that, they won it. Just like when Daniel fought with some common sense, he won the round easy. But then he decided, I'm going to make it an ugly fight. I don't want it to be technical. I'm going to make it ugly, and I'm just going to out-tough this guy. And then Stipe bought into that. And then he decided, wait a minute. I'm a better striker than this guy. Let me go to the body. Ding, ding, ding. Then he won the fight. So we talked about this last week, and we didn't come to a conclusion at all about who would be our top heavyweight of all time based on the outcome of this fight here. And now that we saw what happened and what went down and that uh, Stipe is now the, the, the champ, who do you have as your number one heavyweight uh, fighter of all time now? Um. I guess Stipe, probably Stipe or, or Fedor. I think Fedor's run was pretty impressive because he came out of nowhere and, and demolished Krokop and beat Noguera when Noguera was Noguera. And he was just mopping the floor with Kevin Randleman and Mark Coleman. He was just really beating guys who weren't used to being beat in that manner. I guess Stipe, if you, you consider the UFC to be the peak of mixed martial arts, he has defended the belt more times than anybody. He beat Daniel Cormier, who was an unbeaten heavyweight who had also won the Strike Force Grand Prix, and it was a light heavyweight champion. So, yes, if you go off of the legitimacy of the, at the, guy, at the time, of the guys he's beaten, he's beaten more former or current world champions who are, who are close to their peak. And I guess that would be the separating factor between him and Fedor. Because Fedor later in his, in his age started fading and getting knocked out by, by nobodies. But that being said, if, if Stipe's fighting four years past his prime or six years past his prime, he's probably going to be getting knocked out too. But I'd, say, I'd still say it's between Fedor and Stipe just because they've been active. Cain Velasquez had bright spots, but he wasn't active. Junior DeSantis was active, but he was only competing at a high level for a brief period of time. The rest of the time has been hit or miss. So I, I definitely say it's between those two. Good stuff there. Now let's let's turn to what many are considering the real main event of the fight, where we have Nate Diaz getting a very, uh, I don't want to say dominant, but very strong win over a game Anthony Pettis. And this is a pretty big fight because it allows uh, Diaz to secure himself in not necessarily the title picture, but in the main event picture because he did a fantastic job of calling out uh, Jorge Masvidal after this. And this is a fight that, I mean, this fight could headline a pay-per-view on a properly built card. What are your thoughts? Let's talk about the fight itself first, and let's talk about um, Nate Diaz and what he did to get the win here. Then I also want to talk about Anthony Pettis and what's next. But let's start there with Diaz. What are your thoughts about this fight and how he performed on, on Saturday? Um, he wasn't the Nate Diaz of old just because I don't think his conditioning was where it should have been. It just, be he's be used to Before we go on, before we go on, did you see what he said about that? Because somebody asked him about that. Uh, like uh, I, I saw that he was saying how he was tired and he like he got gas. I think what halfway through the fight, as he said. Yeah, but did did you see why he said that though? No, I did not catch that part. So he supposedly arrived at the uh, venue extremely late and he didn't get a chance to warm up. Oh, hmm. Yeah, well, I guess I guess that's fair. If that's what he says it was, that's fair enough assessment. I'm just going to go with the fact that maybe he hadn't been fighting in a while and, and everybody says, you know, sparring and there's no such thing as, what do you call it, um, a ring rust. But you might be technically sharp, but there's a certain, when you have to fight at a certain pace, I think it just can be exhausting to somebody. And Nate, unlike a lot of guys, Nate, like uh, Daniel Cormier and other fighters who, who work on their conditioning, 
they can fight through that. They're used to fighting tired. They're used to fighting in that red line zone. So it's not exhausting them. They can main, they can go to that level and then go past that level in a fight. I thought Nate looked good. His boxing looked a little bit off. Uh, at points, Pettis was outboxing him, not, not with combinations, but with short combinations and individual shots. What I was impressed with was Nate added to his clinching, his clinch work, and Nate was actually showing some long-range strikes, some long-range strikes, and he was really actively using his wrestling, his offensive wrestling and grappling in it, like looking for those takedowns and using them to transition into positions and the clinches so he could beat Pettis up. He showed a more rounded skill set, and he still showed a dependable chin and an ability. He, I think he fought a little bit against tight. He wasn't fighting at distance so much as he was starting to put pressure on Pettis and starting to chip him up and break him down. So I was impressed that he showed kind of an IQ of recognizing I may like to fight on the outside, but Pettis is an active kicker, and Pettis does not like being pressured. Pettis does not like being pushed back. So I'm going to push him back, and even if it means I'm going to take some shots and maybe lose a round, I know that if I keep pressuring him, those holes and those offensive inconsistencies are going to start popping up in Pettis' game, which they did. Early on, Pettis looked great. As the fight went on, he started fighting out of his pace, started slowing down, and those defensive holes that show up in every fight where someone pressures them started showing up, and Nate took full advantage of them. So there's a couple of different narratives I've been uh, listening to post-fight, uh, and one of the big ones were was that Anthony Pettis was winning the fight until he got hurt. Do you think that's the case? I personally believe that Nate Diaz was doing enough to be winning the fight at that point in time, even before Anthony got hurt. What are your thoughts about that idea that if Pettis doesn't get hurt, that he still wins the fight? I thought Pettis got I thought Pettis got hurt when he tried to kick Diaz and Diaz checked the kick. That's what happened, yeah. So, so if, um, so if like he got hurt second round, I think. If he got hurt because somebody used a defensive maneuver, then then Nate actively played a part in him losing the fight still. And now if you threw some random kick and you separated your shoulder, you missed and you tore up your knee just because you missed or you landed wrong, then that's if you got hurt. But he got hurt for a reason. Like, what was it? Santos who fought, who fought Jones? He had knee issues. He had all these problems coming in. Jones did not cause those issues. Nate Diaz actually caused the injury that put Pettis in the spot where, um, where, where Pettis um, was injured and couldn't continue. So Nate, Nate caused that. And that's an, also another improvement in Nate. How many times have you seen him get his legs kicked to smithereens and never check it even once? I think it's the first time I've ever seen him check a kick, to be honest. So I can't give, I can't give Pettis that way out. Your foot or knee or whatever got hurt because Nate checked your kick. He knew you were going to go kicking for his leg, and he took that, he took that away. He t- took that out of the equation early. I won't say that Pettis wasn't I'll, – I'll give him the first round maybe because Nate's boxing was just off, and he was landing those counters and leads, not putting combinations, but short combinations and single shot. I'll give him that. But with Nate Diaz fight, hasn't he lost or had a, had a highly competitive first round before he turns it on? He lost against Michael Johnson. He was losing the first round against Conor McGregor in the first fight. He was losing against Conor McGregor in the first round of the second fight. There's a bunch of fights you can point to where Nate Diaz is getting it hand to him in the first fight. You don't ever go off a Diaz fight based off the first five minutes. Nobody does that. That's not how the Diaz, got, Diaz brothers work. We all know this. You might hand it to him. D- BJ Penn was beating the hell out of Nick Diaz, Nick Diaz the first round. What happened in round two and three? That, that's, that's kind of what they do. They take shots. They work around it. They make an adjustment. And they wear you out. 
So I can't give anybody that logic because historically speaking, this is how this fight should have went. Pettis early, Diaz late. And I, I, I picked Pettis. I thought Nate would be a little, little rusty, and I thought Pettis would be able to stick to a kicking game or at least have enough of a backup plan that he could control the range and control the pace a little bit. He was, una- he was unable to do anything. The same issues he had before popped up this time, and Nate took full advantage of him. Nate was, Nate was more ready for Anthony Pettis than Anthony Pettis was for Nate Diaz, which is weird because Anthony Pettis said he dreamed about fighting Nate Diaz for five years. And this is the best game plan you had. Not a very good one. So let's talk about what's next for both men. Uh, Jorge Masvidal, is that fight booked? Uh, is that fight as as easy as booked for these two guys? Would you make it a main event for an event? I, I think that this should be a main event fight. It could easily carry a pay-per-view if built around um, a properly structured card. Uh, are you excited to see those two, two guys fight? And if not them, who should who else should they fight? And let's talk about that before we turn on to um, Anthony Pettis. I would like to see the fight, but you know how the uh, UFC is. They want they want title fights to headline pay-per-views. So most likely at best, I mean, if they have common sense, they'll make it the title. They'll make it a headlining fight. But knowing the UFC and their rule to have title fights, they're going to have somebody who's not half as popular fight for a title ahead of those guys. That's just, that's just what the UFC does. They should, make, they should make this fight the main event. It's a good fight. Masvidal is never going to be hotter than he is right now. Diaz coming back and then winning that kind of fight after watching what Pettis did to Wonderboy is never going to be. The only way he's going to be any hotter than he is right now is if he turns around and beats Jorge Masvidal. And the fact is both guys are 155ers who've moved up so it's not one guy facing a, a incredible Hulk. He's facing a guy of similar size, similar weight, from a similar background. They're both well-rounded martial artists. Nate has obviously improved technically, and they're both guys who are well-conditioned and guys who are comfortable in striking exchanges. It's a fight that plays compl- where their strengths mesh together greatly and their weaknesses won't really be exposed against this kind of opponent. Jorge Masvidal can drift in a fight when he's not consistently threatened, when have you ever seen a Diaz brother fight where he's not constantly putting you under some form of duress? There's not going to be Jorge drifting out or losing focus because Diaz is always going to be throwing punches in his face, trying to clinch, try to take him down, trying to kick him. He's going to be forced to fight. And against Diaz, Diaz is used, he, he has issues with wrestlers. Masvidal can wrestle, but Masvidal is not going to look to lay and pray or win a decision by takedowns. He wants to be Diaz showing his skill, showing his heart, and showing that he's just a better man and better fighter. So he's not going to take any strategic choices to make the fight easy. He wants to show that he can outclass and outfight Diaz. So you have two guys who are determined to outclass and outfight each other. So the strategy is going to be there, but it's not going to be a how can I make this fight easy strategy. It's how can I put a stamp on this fight showing I'm the baddest guy in the UFC. And that's what the fans want to see. So this is a, this is a no-brainer. I mean, if Dana White somehow bungles this, then he can never make a comment about boxing ever again. Because to- everybody told you the fight they want. The two guys told you the fight they won. So if you can't somehow make it when you're the only guy who has any influence in the UFC, then I never want to hear another word about boxing not giving us the fights we don't want. It's, it's been clear. They told you what they want. It's his job to get it done, and these guys are both under contract. The thing about this fight that's most interesting to me is that it's a, it's, it's, it's a clearly money fight. Um, I, the, Watching this fight here, 
they can make more money than the champions can when um, Kobe Covington and uh, Kamara Usman fight. I would like there's easily hand over foot. I believe they would make so much more money and have so much of a bigger interest um, than when the actual champion fights. And I and I'm enjoying that we're truly getting to that position for mixed martial arts for more fighters, not named Brock Lesnar, Conor McGregor, or Ronda Rousey. I'm enjoying that more opportunity is setting itself up in that way. And that's what's important because this is the prize fighting game. These individuals are prize fighters and they're doing the best they can to make as much money for their family. And we need more fights like we need more fights like this that that can carry a pay-per-view without the without the uh, what's the word? Without the albatross of a title being tied to it. Well, the thing about it is, like Nate said, and and as much people can hate Ben Askren and they hate Conor McGregor, if you love, let's say you love Khabib Nurmagomedov, you have to like Conor a certain degree because Conor could have said, you know what, I'll take an easier fight. I'll take two easy fights, then I'll fight Khabib. Khabib got his higher highest payday and got his biggest win as far as acclaim and national attention and focus and other opportunities fighting Conor. Conor didn't have to take that fight. You don't take that fight at all. Just like Amanda Nunes, as much as, oh, Ronda's trash, Cyborg's trash, they did not have to take that fight. They did you a favor. They're already established superstars. They helped you get c- closer to the star you're trying to achieve. They could have ducked you. Nobody could have forced them to take those fights. They didn't have to do anything. Those are opportunities that, that you got because they have a competitive spirit and they did the legwork and building themselves and you get to stand on their shoulders and take that next step. Ben Askren, his winning streak and his constant, his little trolling of MMA guys, that helped Jorge Masvidal when Jorge knocked him out. Nick, Nate Diaz, as much as he, you want to hate Connor, if that Connor fight doesn't happen, is Nate making the money he makes? Is he getting the opportunities he gets? No. I mean, hate Connor all you want. He got a lot of guys paid. Eddie Alvarez, better never have a foul word to say about Connor out of his mouth. He gave you career career high payday. Khabib, career high payday. Nate Diaz, Career high payday. Jose Alde, Aldo, career high payday. How are all you people talking so bad about a guy who got you paid, which is the name of the business? You're hating the guy who got you paid? You're hating the guy who, who set your family up for life? What did, what did they say? I have a lot of money. I don't have to take pointless fights. Why do you have a lot of money, Nate? Because before you fought Connor, you were complaining about paychecks. Why do you have a lot of money now? Why, where's all this money come from? Why do you have all this money? Oh, I got gotcha. you. I, that's how the game works, and these guys don't want to play it. They want to, I'm about to sport, I'm going to do it right. Dude, if that's what you want to do, fine. Be Demetrius Johnson, be, be Andre Ward, take your 60 to show, your 500,000, go in your corner, shut up. If you want to make money and you want to get the opportunities where you can headline a car without a title, where you get the extra attention, the extra sponsorships, and you can take a three-year break from the MMA, then you got to make certain sacrifices, you got to do certain things. These guys don't want to do it. That's why they're in the spots they, they're in. It's a business, and nobody wants to add it. Oh, it's a legacy. Yeah, legacy is great. They don't pay your bills, dude. They don't take care of your family. You know, just like with Stipe, it was like, well, I wouldn't. He wanted to fight Brock. That's ridiculous. If Stipe would have won, he would have fought Brock. He would have taken that payday easily. I don't understand why guys keep trying to act like money isn't important. Stop doing billionaires' favor and get your money and get your success while you have a chance to get it. You can rewrite your career after you retire. Look at Michael Bisping. He's a spokesman for the sport. When he was fighting, he was just known as a dick. But now he's a spokesman. See how quickly that turned? See how quickly he turned from spoke dick to spokesman? Amazing. He's like an ambassador for the sport. 
Everybody hated him when he fought. But now he's an ambassador who's a gentleman who is educating fans about the sport. In like less than a year, it, it's ridiculous. Worry about that stuff later. Get paid and take care of your family. Stop helping billionaires make more money and shortchanging yourself in the meantime. Definitely some good commentary there, sir. I really appreciate what you had to say because this money game is real and these individuals have to put themselves in a position to make the most amount of money that they possibly can over their very short careers because they don't have the opportunity to do um, long-term. They don't have the opportunity. They don't have the, uh, what's the word, the privilege of knowing that they will have a long career as most most professional athletes do if, not. If you're a professional so, athlete, you never, you never have the privilege. If you're a professional athlete or an entertainer, every day you get to make millions is a day you need to thank the lower for because that can end quick injury. And how many one-hit wonders have we had? 10 million one year, next year, you can't even, you're going double plastic. Any career is short, unless you're a regular person. You need to take, you cannot leave money on the table. Do not do it. Yeah, things can definitely fall apart really quickly for you. So it it can get out of control really, really badly there. Um, And your coaches still want their money. Your coaches still want their money too. (laughs) So so I want to spend some time talking about um, Yoel Romero and Paulo Costa. Because uh, this was a great fight for three rounds. I had it I had it easily for Costa two rounds to one. I don't see how anybody had Romero winning that, but you know, there's always opinions in this in this martial arts game. What did you think about this fight there? And I want to talk about what's next for both men as well. Um, I saw the growth in Costa because I've I've had a couple guys who I've worked with who fought him. So I've had some different insights on him. They're like he he fights in spots, he likes to come out hard and really put pressure on you and, and have these huge explosions. But if you if you, you pay close attention, the explosions aren't the same, the frequency isn't the same. He gets a little tired. It's just a matter of most people can't survive those explosions because not only is he hard hitting and he's strong and fast, it's hard to dissuade him with power because he can usually eat shots and walk through them. So you'd have to extend them, which means you can't scare him off with your power, which means defensively you have to be very sound. Most mixed martial artists can't do that. They can't stand in front of you and slip and parry and roll and get in their shots and defend takedowns. They have to get on their bike, a.k.a. run around the cage because their footwork is trash. So you spend a lot of energy trying to escape him instead of stepping off at angles or pivoting. You waste a lot of energy, and then you don't want to go against the cage because these guys don't have the counterpunching or the defensive awareness to be on the cage and slip and once again parry and find the counters in between the shots. So they run around the cage trying to get away from him, tiring themselves, allowing him to rest because he's not just throwing, chasing them. He's pressuring them. They get tired. When they get tired, he opens up on them, knocks them out. In this fight, you saw a little bit more poise. He was careful in how he approached Yol because he knew, A, Yol could take him down, and B, Yol had the timing and explosiveness to hurt him. And unlike, and instead of fighting like an idiot and saying, this is what I do and I'm just going to do it, he showed some intelligence and showed some maturity and changed it. He still was aggressive. He still threw for the knockout. But he picked his spots a little bit more carefully because he knew it was waiting on him. And some people could say that's scared. To me, that's showing a sign of intelligence because you recognize the threat in front of you and you made an adjustment in how you approach. Even though it's a slight one, he made an adjustment. And he was able to attack the body and consistently outwork Yo. I felt Yo had the bigger spots. I felt Yo had the bigger spots in the fight. And I felt Yo showed much better defense in Costa. But Costa was consistently beating him to the punch and consistently hitting him. Part of that was Yol's fault, because Yol likes to save energy. He likes to kind of get you off with your rhythm. He'll let you get some shots on him. He'll let you get to the spots you want. 
and he'll take away your confidence because you can't finish him because you can hit him, but you can't hit him the way you want to. And most guys get dissuaded or they get tired or he hits them and then they don't, they don't want to pressure him anymore. He could never get Costa to not get back on him. When he dropped him, Costa got right back on him. When he countered him hard, Costa got right back on him. He didn't allow Yoel to take over the fight like a lot of guys do once they taste his power or once they can't hit him the way he wants to. He stayed single-minded in his focus. Let me just get my hands on him. Let me touch, hit him in the shoulders, hit him in the body, hit him in the arms. As long as I'm making contact, I'm going to keep doing it. And I'm going to load up. I'm going to throw a power when he gives me an opening. But I'm going to continue to chip away at his defense and chip away at his body so late he can't turn it around and hit that explosive knockout shot like he did against Brunson or against Kennedy. And um, that's basically what on the fight. I still felt Romero showed better defense. Costa missed a lot. He missed a lot, and he missed awfully wide. And Yoel had the counters there, and I don't know if he's too old or he was just trying to bait him and wear him out and rope-a-dope him, but he let Costa get away with a lot of missed shots without making him pay, and that's what cost him the fight because he wasn't countering aggressively enough. It's one thing to make a guy miss. In sparring, it's cool. Make him miss, make him miss, make it, make it hard for him to work. But in a real fight, you can't just do that unless you can guarantee the knockout. You have to make him pay at every single turn. Me and King Mo used to talk about that all the time. You can't make, you can't have a miss. You got to make him pay. He, he throws that jab, slip it, dig to the body. He throws that, get that pull counter, hit him with the hard right hand. You got to teach him a lesson. You got to make him pay. You can't exhaust somebody if you're letting them dictate where the fight goes. You're letting them have free reign to attack when they want. You have to give them something to think about. In too many spots, Romero did not give Costa enough to think about. I still think as far as big shots and big moments, Romero did enough to win. But if we're talking about consistency from round one to round three, Costa had him. If it goes five rounds, he would have knocked him out inside of five. I don't think Costa had anything else for him. But for that period of time, Costa did enough to win. Shout out to Eric. I don't know how to say his name. Alberson? Alberson? He coaches Cejudo and uh, Pitbull. Obviously, you can see the effect, the poise, the, the restraint, and the maturity and how Costa fought. He wasn't fighting like a wild man. He was fighting like he had some common sense. And that's one of the questions I had asked. Would he have the restraint to fight the way he needed to fight the win? Or was he going to just serve himself up for a counter and get blasted? So even though, you know, he took some, he took some great shots from Joel throughout this fight, but he was able to His defense hold is awful. Yeah, his defense was awful, man. His hand, like, I feel like someone like Robert Whitaker would piece him up. Um, when, his chin go, when his chin goes, it, it's going to get bad real quick. I hope his chin lasts for a while because once it goes, it's all over. That It, it is all over for him. <laughs> but, yeah, his defense, I mean, he was he was wide open for a wide majority of the fight there. It's just a simple fact that he knew he could take those shots. But what if I'm in his corner right now, he needs to be putting himself in a position to be an alternate fighter for um, this Adesanya-Whitaker fight because we know Whitaker has a, has a tendency to get injured. He's gotten injured last minute before. If I was his manager, if I was Costa, I would be doing all I can to stay healthy, stay in shape, and stay on weight to make sure that if something happened in that October fight between Adesanya and Whitaker, that he is immediately inserted as the um, alternate fighter. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that he's going to. And to be honest, given the fact that he was in quite a punishing fight, depending on when that fight takes place, I mean, you want to make sure you're at 100% at your best. And when you don't know what's going on, you don't know if you're peaking. And quite frankly, he probably needs to take a couple weeks off. He was taking... 
he was taking some pretty heavy leather. And not just that, when you're punishing somebody, landing those kind of shots thrown with that kind of power, that takes it out of you too. Those kind of fights are the fights that shorten careers. I, I fight Whitaker versus Romero was one of those fights that shortened your career. Adesanya versus Gaslam is a fight that shortens your career. Costa versus Romero is a fight that will shorten your career. You only have so many hard shots you can take. You only have so many hard shots you can throw. And he's burning through a ton of them. He's burning, he's burning the candle at both ends. When he crashes, it will be spectacular because you will see it will be falling off a cliff. There is very little subtlety in his game. There is very little layers in his game. When he, it, all his improvements are strategic and mental. When he crashes, and I don't know when that is, it's going to be like he jumped off a cliff. One day he's going to be world-class. Next day he won't be able to beat anybody. It'll be Eric Silverbad when, when he goes past that point. So that's actually I, the name I was I was gonna bring up. That's his, that's the exact name I was thinking of too. Yeah, I mean it's very similar. The guy's just so dynamic and 